I'd like to just take a moment to welcome those of you who joined this retreat a few days ago. I hope you're finding your way and settling in and are in the process of uh, joining the retreat, both those who came uh, on the 15th and equally the coordinators who joined as of last night or this morning, I believe, just for a few days, but uh, with us, and that's lovely. Thank you for the questions that have been offered. Um, I think it says Q and A on the um, on the on the notice board. I, I probably should describe it as questions and responses. I can reliably respond to questions. I'm not necessarily going to be able to answer them all or as fully as you might wish. Um, I also just want to get a sense if um, there's any questions that someone has brought with them that they want to ask live, which is fine if that's the case and equally fine if it's not. There's more than enough here, so you don't need to make make up extra if you're concerned, but just it's useful for me to know if someone has a question they wanted to ask. And this isn't a one-off opportunity, but... Okay. Okay, so I'll start with the basis that most of the questions are here, and if that changes, um, yeah, we can attend to that. So it's an interesting thing to engage with questions in the context of Dharma practice, particularly if we're looking for answers. Um, I think there are, of course, some things where it's useful to clarify, to understand, to be clear about. And there are also questions which clearly reflect a process of interest, of engagement, of curiosity, in which often the very questioning itself is as important as any answer that might come, it seems to me. Um, and it's sort of my practice in these contexts rather than taking them away and thinking about them for some period before but to just bring them in and see what the response is that I might have. Otherwise what's here would actually require the rest of the month to be answered in the fullness that it could be answered. Um, so it'll be answered in the way that it is within this context. And I hope that actually is useful and supportive for your practice and in response to your questions. And um, since most of them aren't signed, which is okay, I won't know if I won't be able to ask if that actually answered it but um, if it was your question and it didn't you can also put your hand up and say oh whatever you want to ask was actually something other so just just going to do a quick little sorting here having read them I sort of did. Okay, so one of the things I learned from one of my first teachers was always answer the easy ones first. And you might run out of time. Um, so someone has asked, can I write up on the notice board the uh, saying from the, the gravestone in Norfolk? Yes, I can and I will. Um... I'm looking for inspiration. So sometimes words, of course, can give us an inspiration. And the, the, the quote was, some of you will have heard and some of you won't, perhaps um, I was speaking about mortality and on a gravestone in Norfolk, a quote that says, or that's on the, on the gravestone, remember, friend, as you pass by, 
as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. Um, so I won't say more about that, but looking for inspiration and the reflection on mortality is a, certainly a place we can find that. I will try and post it. I won't get a chance to until later in the day. Hopefully I'll still manage to do it. How can we be honest with ourselves, given that we are deluded? Well, that's the first honesty, isn't it? Start from the point that recognizes that our perception does not always correlate with some external objective reality, which actually there isn't but which we nonetheless have a certain consensus position around in our culture generally. Um, I think it's actually going too far to say we are deluded. What we can recognize is that sometimes delusion, sometimes blindness is what arises, and that in the Buddha's teaching is understood as one of the fundamental conditions that contributes to or is a foundation for becoming entangled in dukkha and suffering. And addressing that is predicated on our recognizing it. To know, not, I mean, deluded can be a little bit of a, um, a negative word, actually. It can be a bit pejorative. It's, I think, a more useful word is that we are sometimes confused. We sometimes don't see clearly. And sometimes, of course, we have the arrogance to believe that what we see and how we understand is absolutely and unarguably and always accurate. So for whoever's asking the question, if we include and hold in our relating to our perception and our conclusions the possibility that it may not actually be like this, exactly so, in this way, I think that gives us a lot of safety, a lot of protection and being honest with ourselves isn't about being able to have an absolute position on where we are, but to understand that positions, perspectives and views are subject to uncertainty and to change. And what that means is to then check out and see if I see things in a certain way, what happens if I act according to that? If it leads to well-being, then there's a reasonable chance that seeing was accurate, to a certain degree at least. And if it leads towards the undermining of well-being, then it might be suggesting that actually we were seeing something in a way that wasn't so... I was going to say accurate, but in fact, accurate here isn't probably the most useful word. Skillful or useful. I think if one has a, and I think the Buddha's teaching is fundamentally a pragmatic teaching. And therefore, it's something we can test. So maybe that's enough on that. This maybe follows. Do you see a danger through mindfully observing what arises in the moment 
in alienating ourselves from the emotional tone of our experience, which could obscure or prevent the very subtle heart qualities being developed. So there are a lot of different ways we can approach meditation practice, and some of them can sometimes seem that we're not including things such as emotional tone. I am actually of the view that the that the teaching and the practice needs and requires us to include it. So this is one of the things we can notice. Noticing doesn't mean simply noticing and then effectively disregarding. Sometimes we give attention to a aspect of experience and all we need to do is that, just notice. Sometimes we need to sustain the attention on the experience and with emotional tones that's often useful. That's often helpful. That allows us to start to see the way in which they might be influencing or colouring our experience. So it kind of links a little bit to the possibility of being um, confused or um, having our view distorted in some way. And I mean, alienating ourselves from the emotional tone of our experience. In some articulations or sort of expressions of traditional Theravada Buddhist practice, or um, sometimes called Pali Canon orientation Buddhist practice, um, it feels like there isn't a lot of acknowledgement or respect for the emotional life. And... um, I think that's probably a mistake. Personal view. I've seen teachers with and sat and practiced in frameworks that have great sophistication and development in certain areas and significantly less so in others. And every approach has its limitations. If in your practice you're finding a certain orientation and course I can't know exactly what's happening for someone on the basis of what they're saying here but if mindfully observing what arises in the moment leads to you starting to feel disconnected or alienated in relationship to emotional tones I would take that as a significant thing to pay attention to both the fact of the alienation and the need to some extent include emotional tones as being suggested by what's described here so rather than Is it going to cause this or is it not? Look and see if it is, that's something to include. The fact that that's what's happening is telling you something, I would suggest. And as to whether that's going to obscure or prevent heart qualities being developed, not necessarily, I would say. It may have that effect, but again, if you notice that's what's happening, then that's something to... See, how can I address that? It's not that it was necessarily going to happen as a result of practicing in a very particular way. One can practice in quite a um, bare, we could say, stripped down, just noticing changing phenomena, not attending to the quality of tonality that arises in response to it. And yet that can open the heart profoundly. But... It's not guaranteed that it will do that. It depends on a lot of things. And sometimes we need to orient more 
consciously and directly towards the emotional resonances that we might um, recognize as part of those those heart tones. Can you talk more about selfing, such as the range of how it manifests, types of thoughts, and how does it how it hinders us on the path, especially in meditation by obstructing the jhanas and insight, for instance. Is sel- and then a second, is selfing merely a habit? So selfing is a word that has probably become more sort of current in general usage um, probably over the last 20, 25 years. It's not a word that you'd find a direct um, Pali word for or a, trend, a word that the Buddha seemed to use as far as I understand. I'm not an expert in Pali so I could be wrong on that. But it's something that we've in endeavouring to articulate skillfully about the processes that we see that the, the, the teachings that we that point to the suffering involved in identification, identifying with our experience. Selfing is particularly about the processes and the activities where we are identifying with experience and the effect that that has. And so in terms of examples, wherever we are finding the sense of me and my being articulated in response to what's happening or being sensed and felt and sometimes it's in terms of the language and the way the thoughts are constructing sometimes it's actually more the sense that we get of the feeling of being separate and there's a sense of selfing in that but again I don't know if there's a a definitive uh, way to articulate that in terms of examples, the range, it's basically, you know, what the Buddha talked about is to see the way that we identify with form, this body primarily, but equally actually sound, sight, smell, that we think in terms of being the uh, the subject of an experience, a sense of ownership and relationship to the experience of the sense bases, uh, of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. And there's another one, isn't there? But... Uh, You probably remember what it is, even if I don't. Then, in relationship to to feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the way in which we take hold of these. The, um, The way perceptions arise, the way we take hold of the kind of the, the constructed appearance of things, the sense of this is me or this is you or that's the world out there or this is the world in here so wherever we're kind of taking a position in relationship to that where we feel a sense and the the feature of selfing is that there's a a separateness that happens a separation that takes place likewise in terms of attachment to or, or, or the sense of self arising in relationship to um Sankara, karma formation, sort of volitional activity and the result of volitional activity, which is patternings and habits. So when the person says, is it just a habit in the question? In one sense, we could say selfing is a habit, but I would take just out of the word, out of the sentence, because just suggests it's some kind of, you know, just a habit. Actually, it's a really significant thing. For much of the time, we can notice our minds operating from the assumption 
that the location of experience that we're encountering is somehow something that is discrete, that is separate, that is fixed, that is apart from everything it is touched by. And that somehow has the opportunity to act on or be acted upon, but nonetheless is different than what it is encountering. And so selfing is the activity that kind of manifests that. that um, and how does it hinder us on the path by obstructing the jhanas and insight? It doesn't actually obstruct insight. In fact, sometimes it's one of the most fruitful things we'll find as an experience that gives rise to insight. Because what's useful to notice is the contraction in it and the, the suffering, the the unsatisfactory nature of those stories and patternings of, of me and mine, of what I want, don't want, demand or reject, and how all of that doesn't actually have that much impact on the way things are. And that to hold on to it is, um, is painful. So I think the key thing I would suggest with this is to actually tune into the sense of contraction that associates with it, particularly to know it in the body. So we can see the stories of of me and mine and I and where I'm going, what I'm doing. What's And here, my meditation is going to be the thing and my retreat will be classic places where it happens, where we're succeeding or we're failing, where... Um, we're starting to create a sense of who I am in relationship to our current activity, which is meditation or spiritual practice. And and often it comes with a sense of progress, of wanting to be involved in progress. And so the idea of being obstructed, it's sort of like it's problematic, isn't it? Like I'm trying to not be obstructed, but it's me, the sense of me that is the obstruction. And sometimes... Actually, just recognizing the pressure or the sense of there's some kind of movement or pressure to get somewhere, to become something or someone. That is the underlying kind of energy in the activity of selfing, to become this or to somehow avoid becoming this or that, whatever it might be. And so... In a certain way, I wouldn't say it hinders us on the path, because ultimately what it does is it offers us an opportunity to see what our mind is engaged in much of the time, to actually attend to that. Um, but what we might notice is that it's actually painful. It's actually distressing to be caught in those patterns and stories. And... Noticing that actually can also call forth and invite the, our, our, our aspiration and our compassion for our, for our life and our journey to see, how, how do I disentangle from this? What's possible here to put that down, to let go of that? So 
I mean, could I talk more about selfing? The easy answer would have been yes, um, because one could talk rather a lot about it. I think I'll stop there. Um, but actually, I'm just going to check, because I think it's a really useful, interesting topic. If anyone had a question from either clarifying or making more specific what was in this one or anything of my response, please feel free to let me know. And that goes as we continue. You can just say, oh, now I've got a question, if you have. Um, but it's also okay if you don't. Does that make sense? That's just an invitation with that. Yeah. You talked about doing standing meditation. Can you say more about how, why, when, and any pointers for the practice? I think standing meditation is great. I think it's really one of the most, um, I wouldn't say underrated, but underutilized practices in terms of this this, this practice um, tradition and frame. For myself, I've found it incredibly helpful, and I'm... There's always part of me that's a little curious about how little it's taught in many um, retreats. But I teach it a lot. And so, how, why, when? So how? Standing. Feet on the ground, body upright. Paying attention to that as the primary dimension of your experience. Just as breathing might be when you're sitting, or um, the sense of moving your legs, taking steps while walking. Standing is just feet on the ground, body upright. Place your feet shoulder-width apart, pointing straight forward so that they're relatively stable. I always find it useful just to soften behind the knees so that you're not making your legs tight and rigid. You're not locking the knees. And then when, when it is useful, I find it really useful. Beginning walking, ending walking, beginning sitting, ending sitting. If the body's had enough of sitting, you can stand up. If it's had enough of walking, you can stop and stand still. So you can do it in here if you wish. Um, it's really helpful for working with resistance. It's actually really helpful for evoking resistance if you don't have any. So um, it goes both ways there. If you're interested, just try it out. See what it is to just stand as if you were beginning walking and just didn't take a step that's standing meditation at some point you can take one and then it's walking meditation i sometimes find when i'm doing walking and i'm often i like to walk so that i have either at one or the other end something that i enjoy to just stop and be present with such as you know some of the marvelous trees we have here and just the sense of walking so i just stopping facing the tree maybe at some distance maybe quite near and just trees can be great companions for standing meditation great examples great teachers don't get competitive with them they reliably win but there's something about that to be rooted in the earth and yet the tree also has a certain flexibility in the wind that it's not like it's rigid and uh, so standing amongst trees is a place you might learn that practice also or enjoy to explore it what is really real not just a percept a perception 
That's the question, isn't it? What do we mean by real? Do we know what that word means? We have collective social agreements about real. And curiously, if you look over the ages of human civilization, they keep changing. Things that we now say are unreal were real to people a few hundred years ago. Things that we currently say are, un are real, people of other times would have said, no, that's not real. In some ways, real is an agreement. The Buddha didn't get into trying to say what is real. It leaves a lot of room and invites a lot of argument to try and define what is real. To say what exists or doesn't exist is actually to get caught in a, a primary polarity that the mind is excited and attracted by and tranced in and bound within. There's a, a one of the um, couplets of uh, Stephen Batchelor's translation of Nagarjuna um, verses from the center, he, where one of them, which I really enjoy, it says something pretty close to in seeing things, no, in, is it seeing or taking? Well, I've only got my memory here. In seeing things to be real or to not be real, fools fail to see a world at ease. The need to say things are real or not real is actually what takes us away from the ability to see with a different lens than the lens of claiming or denying reality. Or as I was saying in one of the interviews, I think last week, I think this is a Zen master who I can't remember the name of, says, things are not as they appear, nor are they different than that. What do you do with sexual fantasy? I'm not sure if that's addressed to me directly or if it's a sort of general question. Is it possible to have sex without craving? And if so, why do it? Well, um, I'm not sure how relevant this is to our immediate situation, for those of us on retreat at least, um, since we're invited to put that down for the time we have. The sex act isn't the most loving act, if love is the goal. For example, I'm not sure I follow that. So, there's another piece that I'll pick up in a moment. Um, I think if sexual fantasy arises, then it's appropriate to notice it as sexual fantasy. 
If craving for a piece of chocolate cake arises, notice that as food fantasy. Um, it might be useful to attend to it in your body. I wouldn't suggest you attempt to generate it specifically in terms of insight practice. Um, I once found it remarkably useful as a way of dealing with sloth and torpor. And I remember when talking about it with Joseph Goldstein, he said to me, would you teach that to your students? And I said, hmm, I don't know. I think the answer is the same. I still don't know. But uh, it has its uses in that case. Um, I certainly wasn't drowsy. And since I'm saying it, okay, so what I actually found was when the image arose, the energy, one could see the energy arise in the body, the life force becomes engaged, and then there's a place at which there's a certain kind of grasping around it and wanting to make it and to take it into something that one actually holds, and it's possible to separate out the energy from the attachment to getting a particular experience around which the energy is arising. And... Um, That is something that in itself I don't see as unskillful, but requires some maturity and skill. So I wouldn't teach that to someone who is new to meditation. But if there is energy, to see, can we separate the energy? And it could also be the desire for chocolate cake arising. We notice, wow, I'm getting really energized. And if we're struggling with the imagery, trying to somehow push it away, what's more useful is to actually turn the attention to the energy in the system itself that's arising with interest and actually notice what that feels like by turning the attention to the energy and away from the imagery there's some possibility that we can actually find a way to use that energy that's beyond what I can describe or work with but if someone's encountering this territory in their practice I suggest you bring it to an interview and speak about it that would be more useful as for whether or not the sex act is the most loving act, I think it's really a lot to do with where you are in yourself when we act in any situation. It may or may not be so. It's not a conclusion I would assume. Um, and in terms of teaching craving, is this the second part? A lot of people teach craving is dukkha. But have craving stuff, nice things, food, sex, money, comfort... It's all dukkha, right? Question mark. Okay, so... There are things that can serve well-being, which we can also... Food, friends, comfort, money, sex also. These things may be something to contribute to a wholesome and balanced and, in fact, beautiful life. And how we hold them is the issue, it seems to me. And what the Dharma teaching is pointing to is that we tend to conflate um, the movement of the heart where it might move towards something that could be uplifting, wholesome, beautiful, or simply supportive for well-being, food, or, you know, like financial resources, with a sense of how it has to look. Um, how to say this? Craving tends to sort of say it has to happen just like this. It tends to contract around a sense of possibility. The movement of, where, where there's a wholesome movement towards something, whatever it might be, food, person we might be um, sexually attracted to, or something like that, 
What I find most useful is to notice what the somatic sense and the psychic sense is associated with it in terms of contraction or expansion. Because what can be craving and what we would classically call craving that does lead to dukkha, that's not leading to dukkha, it is actually painful, is where there's a contraction. And that generally has a overt or subtle sense of demand within it. It must be so. And a measuring of the experience against the image of whatever is hoped, expected or demanded to see if it fits. Whereas there can be a quality that's actually very expansive associated with the things we are drawn towards that recognizes that, of course, our, you know, the various aspects of what, who and what we are as a human animal will have these responses to food, towards persons we find attractive, towards um, comfort, because, of course, you know, I enjoy the feeling of sunshine on my skin. It's just sometimes exquisitely pleasurable. And that's fine. So there can be a sense of expansion that comes with it. If we notice that we can't just enjoy the sun on our skin, but we start thinking, oh no, I haven't had much sun for the last while, and how long will it last? What we notice is it actually has a contractive effect. And that, to me, is a really useful barometer in any of this territory. Notice if it's contractive, and we can feel that in the body, but also... In a way, psychically, as I said, the mind tightens. It gets into a narrow loop of thinking. And that that um, is a, generally a signifier that it might be useful to move one's attention away from the object where the craving is arising to the fact of the craving itself. Craving, when we're conscious of it, isn't dukkha in absolute terms. It's just unpleasant. What it is dukkha is when we imagine, or the significance of dukkha in this is to understand that such things can't in and of themselves give us ultimate, lasting, permanent fulfillment and satisfaction. To believe that they can is to be caught in the illusion of the avoidance of dukkha through experience, through objects, through things, which just doesn't work out it seems if it did we'd all be happy always but it doesn't seem to Three minutes and four more questions. How does meditation prepare us for bardo and death? Is there an optimal practice for this? Hmm. It's a good question. I don't know about bardos. As one of my teachers said recently, it seems we have amnesia about these things. Um, if we've been there before, we don't seem to remember. I certainly don't. Death. 
I spoke about that to some extent already, so I'm not going to pick it up again. How does meditation prepare us for it? Um, to understand through contemplating the changing nature of phenomena that all this will end means that at that point we're more likely to be able to be fully present and have our heart open in the face of something mysterious. And uh, in terms of optimal practice for that, I think, yeah, to contemplate it, which isn't technically what we often call meditation. And sometimes I think it's useful to understand the difference between meditation is where we're directing our attention to particular phenomena, we could say. Whereas contemplation is actually where we're, where we're feeling and allowing ourselves to be impacted by a particular perception and recognition that has a certain cognitive element to it. Of course, we can say that's meditation too. To allow ourselves to begin to process, to encounter and process the responses we have so that we're not overwhelmed by them at the moment that it happens and therefore are more likely to stay and be able to stay awake be present and to see what actually is needed in that moment, in that time. So I have three questions that are all kind of similar and relevant and I think we have the first interview. Does it work for you if we do that in the 15 minute gap after the third one? And then I can take a little time for these. Okay. So that'll be it. After the third interview. After the fourth interview. Yeah. Dharma Paradox. The original Zen koan was created by the Buddha. I'm not sure about that, but okay. We are told. Okay, so we're told. I've been told. Attachments and aversions create samsara, which is possible to become free of and reach a state called nirvana, path laid out from A to B, but to follow it is inherently defined by being adverse to samsara and attached to nirvana. Hmm. This paradox short-circuited my mind when I first considered it and caused some breakthroughs. Caused some breakthroughs. Nevertheless, please discuss. So I don't know. Maybe you just heard it and it was useful for you. Um, I mean, all of you just now. It's the way you're, the way the question is speaking about it doesn't really resonate with the way I tend to hold this insofar as it's not about becoming free of or reaching a state called nirvana or nibbana or whatever you want to call it if we're relating to the goal of buddha t buddha's teaching the buddha's teachings and dharma practice as some kind of state then we're still in samsara and if it was a state it would be in samsara it's not that being averse to samsara attached to nibbana 
essentially what you're not you're not talking about samsara and nibbana there or, or nirvana depending you know, in sanskrit or pali um you're talking about your perceptions and your ideas being averse to samsara is to be having some rejection or reaction of our ideas and conceiving about samsara not samsara itself and to be attached to the nibbana is also to be attached to some ideas we have about what that might be as um Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche once observed, he said, Enlightenment is a great disappointment for the self. So far as the self might be attached to Nibbana, but it's only some idea of Nibbana, not actually. Because Nibbana is not a state, a thing, a possession or experience. So if this paradox short-circuits your mind, great. Endeavouring to argue the apparent paradox, I don't know if there's that much that's useful in that. And maybe that's not what you're asking. Our mind tends to operate in polarities, setting one thing against another. Oppositional polarities often. And if we make samsara and nibbana into another version of that, like we're trying to get out of here into there, it just becomes another part of the process of samsara. A sense of a, a wheel and a cycle of constant moving and going nowhere. So far as we are more and more aware and conscious of how that happens we have the possibility to just say let's say to to actually become aware of the energy of that the movement of that in one's heart in one's mind in one's body to actually feel that sense of movement of being either drawn towards whatever it might be whether it's chocolate cake or nibbana it's the same if it's coming from that where there's a kind of a contractive quality to it. We want to notice that and actually move the attention to the sense of contraction. If it has an expansive quality to it, if it's uplifting, if it's a sense of sort of the heart rising in a wholesome way, it will have a more expansive quality. And again, we can attend to the expansive quality itself. Rather than focusing on whatever image or conception we have of the thing, which will only ever be that, whether it be an image of a piece of chocolate cake, a sexual fantasy, or a spiritual fantasy of Nibbana. And that's often the kind of fantasy that gets sort of generated. That's probably what I can usefully say there. What are the limits of the Buddhist, and this is in quote marks, lens? And when, where, why do you step outside of it? And how or by what means, I guess, do you step outside of it?
So the the phrase, the Buddhist lens, in a sense, it seems is referring to ways we can look at our experience that um, are encouraged in the Buddha's teachings. And there's, in fact, lots of different lenses we can look at. I'm not sure there's one, the Buddhist lens. But the way the, the Buddha talked about it himself was to say, actually, whatever, to, looking through a lens, is, in, in a sense, it's an action, much as any other kind of action. So far as we're aware that we're looking through a lens and we have a choice about it, to see what happens when I do this. If I look through the lens, for instance, of impermanence, or if I look through the lens of, of not-self, we could say these are Buddhist lenses, if I look through the lens of dependent origination, the recognition that all things emerge out of conditionality and do not become solid things, but remain fluid, what's the effect in how we relate to such things when seen in that way? If it seems to be contributing to softening and opening of the heart to a releasing of the, the tightening the gripping that we reach towards and push away experience with and if it's if there's a kind of an opening out of the sense of of identification with our inner experience as somehow fixed and solid and definitive of who and what we are then that's a lens that's being used in a useful way if it's creating a hardening or a tightening of a sense of me as a Buddhist or that we have to focus in such a way, or that we're focusing through that lens in such a way that doesn't really seem to be creating more space or openness or evoking wholesome responses or a sense of seeing more clearly, then maybe that's not the one we need to be using right now. The thing with this is that it's very, very particular to where one is as to how one needs to look at what's going on. And a lot of what the Buddha taught was in relationship to habitual and familiar perceptions and positions that people were reliably, if not inevitably, located in at the time he was teaching. A lot of those positions are not the positions that we have started in. And sometimes we need to reconsider what it is that needs to be looked at and seen. And so I think the the process of the Dharma, of the Buddha's teachings, evolving and developing over the centuries and through different cultures has been a reorienting at times and a reorganizing. And I wouldn't say it's so much a case of stepping outside of the Buddhist lens or looking at things through this sort of framework, but seeing that the idea that there is a particular lens and it's the only lens and the true lens and the real, you know, the one true real Dharma, that in itself is a misunderstanding. The Buddha did not teach the same thing to every student or practitioner he encountered very clearly. And this is why he was the perfect teacher, it seems, according to, the, to what we're told, that he taught each person as they needed to be taught and therefore gave each person, in a sense, a different lens to look through according to where they perhaps were not seeing clearly. And um, so the limits, in a sense, are assuming that there is a singularity in it, and it's always going to be used in one way. 
when one understands it's actually a pragmatic response to particular orientations or distortions and that one needs to adjust that according to where one is, then it's not so much about stepping outside it from my perspective, but actually adjusting the particular version that you're using. Um, and some people won't agree with that, but um, certainly in terms of, you know, this is what Buddhism says or doesn't say. I actually don't see it quite that way. Again, just in terms of a more simple way of putting it, as Ajahn Chah responded to a student who said, you know, I hear you sometimes saying, do this, do this, and then sometimes you're saying to somebody else, do that, do that, quite the opposite. What are you, what are you, what are you teaching? And he says, well, I see all these people walking on a path. I know it well. I've walked it many times. Sometimes I see them going left. So I call out, go right, go right. Sometimes I see them going off to the right side of the path. I say, go left, go left. Sometimes they've stopped. I say, get going. Sometimes I see them coming the other way and I say, turn around and go the opposite direction. I'm actually amplifying the quote a little bit to make it more clear. He didn't say it quite like that. But the point is that there isn't, the fact that there might be lots of different ways of teaching, of practicing or of looking doesn't suggest that any one of them is ultimately true or the ultimately real Buddhist teaching. From where I'm sitting, the development of traditions has actually encompassed the limitations of earlier expressions. So one can see the uh, the way in which certain streams and the you know of um, early monastic Buddhism didn't quite honour fully the realm of of the material expression of life. That it very easily saw it as somehow the problem to be transcended, avoided, or got rid of. And, you know, one version you could see was you could understand certain interpretations, and I'm not saying this was the Buddha's teaching, but the interpretations that came to us of, um, of, the, you know, of early Buddhism that basically said, look, it was a real mistake to get born. Bring that birth to an end and don't do it again. That, that's what you could see is what's being suggested, avoiding rebirth. But in that easily uh, misunderstanding, I would say, and a wrong holding of the, the teaching and practice, then led to a rejection of the realm of of birth, of life, not birth, of life. And in the Mahayana tradition, a very strong emphasis on, on compassion and caring for life emerged as a counterbalancing, and we could say, another lens. Uh, that's a way too simplified version of what actually was happening and why. But I think in this context, that's part of it. And what we're engaged in, in at the moment in our world is also an endeavor to align the experience of, of wisdom, of compassion, of freedom with the conditions of the world in which we are. And the, the Dharma and the lens of the Dharma that is being revealed in our world is going to look different than it was in other worlds. And by worlds, I don't mean planets. I mean the world that arises in our view. That's the only world there is. The world that arises, what we call out there.
And so for myself, the Dharma is something that actually is continuing to be informed by the lived experience of the practitioners such as ourselves. Not just at the time of the Buddha, but and then the, the, the great ages of all these wise masters, but actually our practice too is informing, we could say, the lens that is available, the lenses. Is that the word? Lenses? Multiple lens. Yeah, okay. Which in one minute gets me to the last question. I'm experiencing doubt in the relevance of Pali Canon Buddhism to counter capitalism, climate catastrophe, refugees. Dispassion does not equate with loving spiritual engagement for me. Can you help me? Dispassion is not about the absence of passion any more than um, non-attachment is about the absence of connection. Dispassion is about not imagining that a certain set of conditions are somehow going to do it for me. It's removing the fantasy that we project onto the circumstance that imagines this is either the solution to my life or it's the problem. Somehow it's ultimately the obstacle. And therefore the thing, the perception, the doesn't actually have the same weight. I, for myself, I think there's an immense amount of wisdom in the early teachings of the Buddha. In fact, if we were to apply them, they would profoundly transform our culture and give us an ability to um, address much of what we see. Of course, applying them isn't necessarily what's happening. So the question is, how do we bring the life of our practice and our heart into the world? And the templates for that are not necessarily going to be found in ancient texts. They're going to be found in our own hearts and our own love of, of what it is that we love. Um, I'm not going to try and I don't think it's useful to set these things up as either the, the like, I don't think there's a lack there in, in that particular teaching. But as I was saying, it was in a different context and circumstance. And there are perhaps other things that need to come. But the cultivation of loving kindness, this moves us to act in the world. I can't think that it doesn't. And... I personally don't take the view that it's more or less important to do inner work or outer work. I think both are important and that each of us may be drawn in different ways. Inner work is uh, transforming inner culture and that is part of the outer culture. But uh, outer work is also transforming the, the inner world. I don't think in the end the point of our existence is to produce a particular outcome in our own life or in the world, but to engage with it with as much love and as much clarity and as much um, courage as we're able to and trust that, that that's what our life is. Outcomes are not in our hands. And yet the integrity of that engagement 
matters. I think that's as much as I can usefully say in this context on that topic. This context being running out of time. Um, I hope that there's been something useful in those responses. If there are further questions from that, feel free to let me know in any way you wish. Um, or if you wish to have a further conversation. That's what we can also bring to interview sometimes, if you wish. So thank you for your practice, for your questions, for your listening and your presence just now and here. And may all of our practice and our heartfelt engagement, may it really, truly and deeply contribute to the the well-being and the, the healing and the freedom that we and our world call for. and are drawn to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.